Hello, parents, caregivers, and listeners. This is The Owner's Manual, a podcast for parents, and I'm your host, Drew Nash. This is episode 107. We have put together a terrific show for you. Today, my friend and colleague, Dr. Marianne Borden, will make her second visit to the show. The topic today is pediatric potpourri. During our talk, we will discuss several common illnesses that occur in infants and children and what you as parents can do at home to manage them. We will also go into when to worry and when not to worry and when a visit to the child's doctor might be needed. I think this will be a good way for parents to review their current comfort level and knowledge with common childhood illnesses and maybe up their game a bit as far as knowing when to seek further care. After the main discussion, I'll answer some questions from listeners. The Owner's Manual, a podcast for parents, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and most other podcasting platforms. Since this is a new project, I'm sending a special shout-out to all of our current listeners to spread the word. If you like listening to the show, tell your friends, and leave a comment, too. I hope you subscribe to the show on whatever platform you use so you can be notified when each new episode becomes available. In addition, visit our Facebook page at the Owner's Manual Podcast, where you can like us, post a comment, and even post a question to be answered on the show. If there's a topic you'd like to hear about, this is a great way to let us know. While we hope that listeners are able to learn and benefit from the content of this show, the information discussed on the Owner's Manual is not intended to diagnose or treat any specific individual or condition. There is no substitute for direct patient care from a trained clinician. If you have concerns about your child, we recommend that you make an appointment with your child's primary care physician for an evaluation. And now on to the show. My guest today attended college and medical school at UCLA and went on to complete her pediatric residency at Stanford. For the past two and a half years, she's worked alongside yours truly here at One to One Pediatrics in Danville and has established herself as a resource and fixture in the community. Please welcome once again, my friend and colleague, Mary Ann Borden. Well, welcome back, Mary Ann. I'm glad you could uh, come back and talk to us more. Good to be back. And today we're going to kind of do pediatric potpourri. We're going to discuss several topics that are common in pediatrics that frequently see patients for and that we get a lot of questions both in the office and via phone about. Perfect. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, let's start. So I thought the first topic we could touch on is probably one of the most common symptoms we see, which is fevers in children. And uh, what parents need to do and when parents need to worry. So let's start with, I think we'll just go chronologically and start with newborns. So it's a different topic talking about a newborn with fever than say a six month old with a fever, but when when should a parent measure a temperature? And we're talking about a less than two month old here. And when should they worry and or call? So a newborn with a fever is pretty much the only category that is worth more alarm than other symptoms. Um, we take in Infants less than two months old, we take fevers more seriously than we do in, in any other age group. And it is definitely one of those that if, if your baby feels warm, is not acting right, and you measure a fever, that, that we want to know about it right then and there. Day or night? 
Day or night. Two yes. in the morning. Yes. This yes. is not a 12 hours later. It's not a 911 call, but it is It is one of the few categories in pediatrics that really uh, warrants medical intervention kind of right when it's noticed. And can you kind of tell the viewers, how do we define a fever in a newborn? What's a fever? What's not a fever? Yeah. So a fever by definition in a newborn is 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit or 38 degrees Celsius. With one of those fancy ear thermometers? No. <laughs> so really a rectal temp um, and or under the arm, if you can get the infant to stay still enough, um, is you know, if you had 100.4 under the arm, that is definitely a fever. Um, the the gold standard or the, the real kind of accurate measurement for a newborn would be a rectal temp of 100.4 or 38 degrees. Okay. And so say your baby is... Acting fine, smiling, or not smiling, they're not two months old, but acting fine, eating well, and acting totally normal. Um, should a parent check their healthy child's temperature for no reason whatsoever? No. <laughs> we don't recommend that you check a daily, weekly, monthly temp. Um, I really emphasize with parents that you'll know the first time your baby has a fever. Uh, I didn't quite understand that concept until I felt my newborn well, probably six month old with his first fever. Uh, you just know you've been feeling them every day, every hour for their entire lives. And when they're warm, you'll you'll feel it. And they won't be acting normal either. You can tell there are other, other signs. Your baby is going to be a little fussier, a little less interactive, not feeding as well. And then they're going to feel a little warm. And that's going to be the thing that prompts you to take their temperature. So they're listless or they're not feeding well or they just seem off. Yes, Yes. And what I like to tell parents is even though they're new at this, say they've got a four-week-old, by four weeks, they are the world's expert on their child. Absolutely. More than anybody else. More than anybody else. And they'll know. And that's the time that you take a temperature. So your baby's not acting right. You take a temperature. It's 100.8 rectally. Then what? So at that point, it's time to reach out to your pediatric office. And if it's during the daytime... Hopefully they'll get you in and you'll be able to, to, to be seen that day. Um, if it's after hours or you can't get an appointment with your pediatrician, that really does warrant either an urgent care or if it's the middle of the night, an emergency room visit. And what to expect with that kind of a visit? So unfortunately, in babies that are between 0 and 28 days of life, if they get a fever, even if it's just from a cold, say you have a 3-year-old at home that's brings home a virus and the baby is unfortunate enough to get it and runs a low-grade fever, if they are between 0 and 28 days of life, they'll get admitted to the hospital. That's kind of the, the category that doesn't have a decision-making tree. It's a strict protocol that, that babies between 0 and 28 days are admitted to the hospital if they get a fever. Because we want to make sure that they don't have some kind of overwhelming infection. Exactly. Even, Even though, though that's rare. It's unlikely, but it's not the kind of thing you would take risks with. So right. you collect all the specimens that they would collect and then put the baby usually on, on IV, IV, antibiotics. IV antibiotics until you're sure that everything's fine. Right. And so that's the... that. That's why we emphasize in that newborn period that we want to avoid exposure to relatives with, with colds or, you know, in the middle of the winter, you don't have a lot of people come and visit the new, new newborn because if they get, if they're unlucky enough to get even just a mild virus, if they get a fever, they're going to be in the hospital. And that's also why we probably tell people not to go traveling to the middle of the country or someplace 
unfamiliar if they don't need to in the first two months. Yeah. Definitely the first month. Definitely the first month. And, and you know, it's not like there's something magic about day 29, pretty much if your baby's 30, 34 days old, five weeks old, they're probably still going to get admitted if they get a fever unless, unless they are just looking absolutely perfect and, and have very, very convincing basic cold symptoms. There's, there's really those first six weeks, especially if, if your baby looks ill or has a fever, they're probably going to be in the hospital. Okay. And then what about that kid who's a six month old, like your child was, who has wake up in the middle of the night and they're fussing and they feel warm and you take their temperature with either an under the arm or rectal temperature and say it's 101. What then? Yeah, you're really in a much, much safer spot then. And that's when fevers are just a symptom that your child is fighting something. And if they are acting relatively normally and looking themselves, that is not an emergency. And certainly if for peace of mind you want to call an advice nurse, most pediatric offices have a service that that if you have a question in the middle of the night and you're worried that there's a medical professional that can kind of guide you through some symptoms. But but a fever of 101 and an otherwise well-appearing six-month-old is a sign that their body is fighting something, and usually a virus. Maybe an office visit in the morning. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And just to, we kind of touched on it a few minutes ago, but is there a role for that really fancy ear thermometer? <laughs> Not a fan of the ear thermometer personally. Um, I, I am sure that there are people that that have had really good results with them and I'm sure that a lot of a lot of ear thermometer companies would argue that that they have oh, I'm sure they would the right ones yeah. um, we find that especially in the higher range temperatures that it that a baby that really does or a child that really does have a fever that they go they go off the off the mark and tend to give us very high results well in order for them to work they're supposed to bounce their little laser beam off of the baby's eardrum and it is hard enough for us to see that eardrum. With an ear speculum. With, with an ear speculum, cleaning out wax, wiggly baby. So to expect that that machine can actually do what it's supposed to do is, I think, unrealistic. And yes. so you get either the temperature of earwax or some... Or the skin right up against it. Number. Right, yeah. exactly. And, and I'd say almost universally, if I hear a very, very high number for a fever and I then inquire as to how it was measured, it's with a tympanic membrane mm-hmm. thermometer. And when they would give you that information, what your response would be, would be either take it rectally or take it under the arm. Exactly. You, you want an accurate number before yep. you're going to make any kind of decision about what to do. Yeah. Okay. At what point should you worry as a parent as far as height of fever? So, honestly, I can't think of a number outside of the newborn period that I would consider um, a medical emergency. Now, I I always, if a child has been out in the sun and has heat stroke, that's a totally different, you know, the body temperature can become dangerously high from outside forces. But from an infection, um, there is not, kids are very resilient to high fevers. And if a child is looking okay, the, f- the number itself of the fever is much less informative and concerning. And so can you describe what you mean by looking okay? Because I, I use that term a lot too, but what do you mean? Yeah, so if your child is 
listless, not responding normally, not answering questions appropriately, um, unable to drink, unable to really um, engage and interact with you, that's really concerning, whether they have a high fever or not. And so certainly a child with a fever that's not interacting normally, that child needs to be seen right away. Mm-hmm. But a child that um, is uncomfortable, fussy, but engaging, acting, responding appropriately when you're, when you're interacting with them, um, will feed, will drink, is urinating, uh, much less of kind of an urgent or emergent concern. Okay, good. So what about an older kid who can verbalize to you? So whether it's a four-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old who comes, you know, wakes up with 102 or 103, is there a point at which you need to go to the emergency room or is there a point at which they need to get seen? What's your normal time frame perspective on these? My, my take with the higher fever is, again, that the number in and of itself is not as concerning as how the child looks. So a child with a 103.5 degree fever that really looks sick, is not interacting well, um, has symptoms that are concerning, a, a strange rash, a stiff neck, a really, really unusually bad headache, that's very concerning. Mm-hmm. Um, a child that doesn't feel well and feels achy and has a high fever, but especially feels better when the fever comes down if you give them medication, cool them off. Uh, That's much less concerning. And I think when you get to be older, you can communicate some of your other symptoms. So a kid with 103 that says they have a horrible sore throat or a kid with 103 that says their left ear is hurting, obviously you're a little more focused about what's going on. Right. And obviously if they're so miserably uncomfortable that you really need them to be seen, that's one thing. But if you can can control their, their discomfort and they can settle back down and go to sleep, that's a office visit the next day, not necessarily a run to the emergency room yep. just because of the number on the thermometer. Yep. Okay, good. Um, when we're talking about high fevers, uh, just to kind of say there is a small subset of kids who yes. tend towards uh, having a febrile seizure. Yes, and that, that is one of the scariest things for parents to, to go through. And that is one of those categories that when we say high fevers in and of themselves are not dangerous, yeah, there is a subset of kids that when their body is, is mounting a high fever, they will have a seizure. And, um, and that's not something that you can predict in advance, but definitely warrants an evaluation right away. Right. Because you don't know what's going on. Exactly. But are in hindsight, once that's determined that that's a febrile seizure, even then, that seizure is really considered not harmful. Exactly. Scary. Scary. But, but not harmful. Not dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. And and the the, the fever is the thing that that prompts the seizure. But whatever infection their body was fighting is is not causing the seizure. And it's a body's response to the fever. To the fever, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about our next potpourri topic. Again, really common. Um, the common cold, upper respiratory infection is the medical term. So different ages might present a little bit differently. So again, let's work chronologically. Uh, occasionally you do see a young infant, um, two months or three months, who gets a cold from big brother or sister. 
how does that present and what can we do? Yeah. So again, in, if there's a fever associated and they're, they're less than six weeks, that that's a, that category of that they need to be seen right away. But yep. otherwise, um, the start of a common cold is usually marked by a lot of nasal symptoms in a newborn. Their, their passageways are small to begin with. And if you add a little bit of mucus there, you're going to have a very noisy, congested, and you know, sometimes kind of miserable baby. Mm-hmm. And uh, the starting point for parents is to have an arsenal of saline drops <laughs> <laughs> that they can start right away. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, nasal saline drops to have on hand for that first cold is really helpful. And any version of a nasal suction, the hospital actually sends newborns home with a little blue bulb suction. Uh, there are all sorts of other uh, suction devices. Like that Frida baby. Yes. That I'm glad didn't exist when my child was a newborn. <laughs> that involved parents suctioning themselves. Yes. Uh, there, there are all sorts of, of contraptions, but, but basically trying to keep those excess secretions as um, thin and removed from the nasal passageways as possible. Uh, the babies will feed better, they'll sound better, and they'll be more comfortable. Okay. Other strategies? Well, we, we avoid medications, and yep. certainly in the, the, the babies less than two years, there's not a go-to you know, pharmaceutical yep. or over-the-counter medication that we really advise. Uh, it really is controlling those secretions. And sometimes babies do need to be seen right away because there's so much congestion that they're actually having a hard time breathing mm-hmm. and, and having distress. And so, um, so those babies, if they're really struggling with a, with a significant enough viral upper respiratory infection, and, um, and either are unable to latch and feed well or unable to breathe comfortably, they do need to be assessed. Because it's hard to nurse when your nose is that stuff. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, they, they will pull off. And again, if they're nursing well and it's just taking them twice as long, that's fine. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. it'll just be um, a little more laborious. But if they really are unable to, to feed comfortably, uh, even with extra time spent trying, then, then we want to have them checked out. And then the cough that you oftentimes will see associated with the upper respiratory infection, when does the cough potentially become something that needs to get looked at? Yeah, so we have families kind of try to assess how comfortably the baby is breathing. If the baby really is working hard, they it's, it's easy to tell when their muscles are really tugging in between their ribs, above their clavicles. If your baby is... Um, is showing signs that they are using kind of every bit of their rib cage to try to, to work through that congestion and look like they're working really hard, uh, flaring their nostrils, making kind of uncomfortable sounds every time they're trying to breathe. We call it grunting. Not the same grunting as a fussy newborn. <laughs> we referred to it your last podcast. Yeah, but um, but basically with ex- with each exhalation, if they are making a noise of pushing to try to keep their airway open, and they are you know looking as though they're having a hard time, especially in a baby under two, under one, particularly that requires a visit. They don't have um, a lot of extra energy and strength to, to kind of overcome congestion sometimes. Now that's not 
that's not typical, but certainly in the middle of the winter, there are a couple of viruses that we see that can really preferentially uh, affect the younger babies. And usually when they get to that point, you're going to see a dramatic change in their ability to feed. Yes. So one of the things that I try to tell people is if your baby's feeding well, that should be very reassuring. Very reassuring. Yeah. Yeah, a baby that is feeding well and, ha you know, having normal wet diapers and normal stool, that's very reassuring. A baby that is that is working, that their energy is going towards breathing and not prioritizing other things, obviously much more concerning. Okay. Then as we get into toddler or school-age kids with a cold, uh, any pearls of advice as far as how to manage that? Yeah, I mean, those are the ones that... that the night times just get worse. You know, we, we often get that first morning call because parents have been up all night long with a congested toddler. Mm -hmm. And as soon as they lie down, all of those secretions pool in the back of their throats and then the cough starts and then it kind of becomes a vicious cycle and, and it can be a pretty miserable night. So some of the supportive measures are actually really helpful. A hot steamy shower right before bed to kind of loosen things up and get some of those secretions moving, propping them a little bit, you know, sleeping at a 45 degree angle mm -hmm. so that, that the back of the throat isn't collecting all of that, that mucus drainage can be really helpful. Soothing things like warm tea, you know, chamomile tea with a little bit of honey, all of those things. Those a lot of families find are as effective as the over-the-counter marketed products. And can you speak a little bit to the role of those products? Yeah, th th there aren't any that are my go-to. Yep. I have some families that, you know, swear by in a, in a an older child, an older toddler, a Delsum or a Mucinex, but they're really variable. It's something to try if you're stuck. Yeah. But there's n there's not a cure for the common cold. No, there so really is. There's isn't. not a medicine that's going to make the length of your symptoms shorter. No. And there's not, you know, I think parents sometimes especially in the middle of the night, they'll they'll go to the medicine chest and and speaking of potpourries, they'll, they'll throw yeah. a lot of different things. And we really caution against that. Um, there are a lot of multi-formulation cold and cough remedies out yeah. there that, that really in, in a younger child can have a lot of extra medication that's not helpful. Mm -hmm. um, we, and we, again, we don't find that there's really any one that is, is consistently effective. No, they're out there, but yeah. Yeah, there's not a go-to yeah. thing. And I find that that soothing the throat, you know, with with a with a spoonful of honey is almost as effective as anything I else. I think the research actually has shown that that honey, whether it's in a tea or straight up, has um, it works as well as any of the over-the-counter medicines. Yeah. So. Obviously, there's not a flavor issue with honey because it's delicious. Exactly. And there's no <laughs> not side for a child under a year. Not for a child under a year, but <laughs> it's uh, delicious and it it works. Yeah. Soothing. Yeah. So. Yeah, and and really the the cleaning out of the nasal passages is for me in in you know in my personal experience and then in dealing with lots and lots of families that if the more that they can do with saline drops or nasal flushes or nose fritas. Um, the better their night's going to be. Mm -hmm. And um, I get a lot of parents of, of toddlers that say, well, they just won't let me do it. And that's a, a situation where if you need to kind of have a couple of adults <laughs> <laughs> pin a baby, it's pin a child pretty. down. No, but I, they don't like having drops up their nose, but really um, getting some lubrication and, and thinning those secretions can help a ton. Yep. 
I agree. Okay. And when does a cold become not a cold? When should you worry as far as whether that's severity or duration? Yeah, I mean, the same, the same policy applies for the breathing. If a child, you know, if an older child is really working hard and struggling to breathe, not able to speak in sentences, you know, seemingly not able to catch their breath, that's concerning and, and we need them to be seen. Um, with the common cold, I always tell families that I'm much more interested in a fever, you know, over three days in than I am a fever in the first 72 hours. Mm -hmm. um, a, lot of, a lot of kids, when they have a common cold, will have a little kind of associated low-grade fever with it, or even a little higher fever. Viruses are associated with fevers. Sure. Um, but if you've got a child that's had a, that's, you know, three, four, five days into what you thought was a common cold that then spikes a fever, then we start thinking about, is there an ear infection? Is there a pneumonia? Is there something else bacterial that's settled in on top of this initial viral process? And as we're heading into the flu season, any pearls of wisdom to differentiate a common cold from influenza? Yeah, so flu is generally associated kind of from the beginning with more discomfort. So usually starts with fever, often sore throat, often really body aches and misery, fevers, um, sorry, headaches. And uh, these kids, rather than starting with kind of congestion and a sore throat, they start with fever, sore throat, and just not feeling well at all. You feel like you've been hit by a truck. Yeah, yeah. All over. Yes. Yeah. The flu is just a much more intense feeling. And um, and that does warrant, certainly it does not need, if it if it strikes at 10 at night, you don't need to, to rush right to, to medical care. But we like to know about influenza symptoms within the first 48 hours because there are things that we can do. There are medications that will actually shorten and alleviate those symptoms right we right can make you better faster we can yeah and um and if you wait till day four of misery those medications are are less likely to be effective yep. and really alter your course so so that if your child has a high fever especially you know if, if it's in the middle of the summer much less likely to be influenza but if you're in november december january and you've been hearing all over the radio and the news that influenza is here and your child has a fever and feels like they've been hit by a truck it Often like, is the flu. Likely is that. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And then shifting gears slightly here to the next potpourri topic, not the flu, but what we call the stomach flu, oh. which really has nothing to do with the flu at has all. Has nothing to do with it the flu. It's really gastroenteritis. I don't know why it's called the stomach flu, but no. people oftentimes think that the flu vaccine that we give is going to impact that or that how could my child have the stomach flu if we got the vaccine. So I can't tell you how many times I hear from parents that they're not going to do the influenza vaccine this year because everybody in the family had a nasty stomach flu last year. And they have despite the influenza vaccine. Nothing to do with one another. Nothing to it do with one another. It is a totally different class of virus. You catch it differently. So Yes. And that and being said, people with influenza may vomit, but it is not a primarily vomiting and diarrheal illness. Yes. So how does the hate to use the term here, but how does the stomach flu, which is not influenza, present? Yeah, so a, a child that suddenly has very intense multiple episodes of vomiting, often then followed by or coincidentally with diarrhea, 
cramping, you know, explosive loose stools. That is the quote unquote stomach flu. Um, sometimes low grade fever, not always. Um, oftentimes multiple family members or kids in a classroom, in a daycare setting. Um, it is a quite a contagious and nasty process. And so, um, so if your child suddenly has multiple episodes of vomiting, uh, that is more likely. Now, there are lots of reasons for that. There's food poisoning, there's this, the viruses, but, um, but, but a, a stomach flu is, is a virus, not the influenza virus that and in, initially, whether it's truly gastroenteritis, the viral cause, or a food poisoning, or something else, we we manage it the same way. Really. We do. So, how what should a parent do? Which I think I try to reflect back to them and let them know this is kind of what you would do for yourself. Absolutely. But what what advice do you have for parents whose kids get sent home from daycare or from school with some vomiting? What do you do? Yeah, I mean, hydration really is the key. It's, it's the number one, two, three, and four of management of vomiting and diarrhea. It is maintaining hydration. And if you have a child that really cannot keep any fluids down over a period of time and, and is showing signs based on their urine output slowing down, um, their, the mucous membranes in their mouth not being as moist, uh, when they cry they don't make tears, if they're showing signs that they're dehydrated, then that is more concerning. But if you're able to keep up with their fluids, you can manage this at home. And what kind of fluids would you be using? Yeah, so in, in babies that are breastfeeding and that are vomiting, we want moms to keep nursing through it. Um, it's kind of the one dairy that, that, that you keep charging through. Because it's easily digested and because it has antibodies in it. Absolutely. And because it's the it's best food. it's yeah. food it's the best nutrition. Yeah. And babies that are formula fed still do formula too. I mean, so if we have a baby that's not nursing, um, we may add it's same with a nursing baby too. There are infant rehydration solutions like a Pedialyte um, that that may be more tolerable for a baby that's on formula than the formula itself. But um, but breast milk and formula are still used kind of as the mainstay um, with then Pedialyte as a backup. And would you like immediately try to feed a baby like they threw up and then you're trying to... No. No. <laughs> so, so our basic rule of thumb, there's not a magic number, but you want to wait at least a half an hour, so 20 to 30 minutes. Some people would argue in older kids even longer to give the stomach some rest after it's unloaded. And to, to take a little break before reintroducing any volume into the stomach. It and just demonstrated its uh, unwillingness to be full. Yes. So you don't really want to push that. Right. And then the starting point, um, you know, kind of in a, in a child one year above is basically to start with clear liquids um, and those oral rehydration solutions are fine. Uh, water is fine to an extent, but we do need to be giving back salt and some sugars and things. But but at the beginning, any kind of clear liquid is um, is the starting point. And in small small sips, yep. small small sips, because kids are going to be thirsty. This is a this is a battle. They want to drink more. You'll watch them. They'll guzzle. And then they'll throw up immediately. Yes, which doesn't help anybody or <laughs> doesn't anything. Doesn't help anybody. So you basically want to wait 20 to 30 minutes from the last vomiting episode and then let them take 
about five mLs, a teaspoon, a small sip. And if that stays down for five, 10 minutes, then you double the volume. Mm -hmm. And as each time they keep it down for five to 10 minutes, you can on the next sip kind of double the amount. Yeah. One thing that has always struck me as odd is a lot of these rehydration solutions, I'm not sure if it's still true, but I know it used to be true, come in different colors. And I understand why they need to taste decent because you're trying to get a child to drink it. But I don't understand why Pedialyte needs to be purple. Why would you give your child something purple <laughs> when you think that the risk of them vomiting that up is very high? So I would, when you're choosing a rehydration solution, look for ones that are clear. That are clear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And in in older kids, the, the Pedialyte or those, you know, kind of the classic rehydration solutions are really salty for for. A good reason. Yeah. We want to put salts back into the system. Um, but at a certain point, kids really won't drink them, especially when they're not feeling well. And I tell parents, really, any any liquid is fine. If you want to go get some clear Gatorade and dilute that down a little bit, of course, it's loaded with sugar. But if that's the only thing that your child will drink and it stays down. Then that's exactly what you're trying to accomplish. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes those are the things that really do... Um, taste the best and, and feel the best when you're mm -hmm. not feeling well. Um, Sprite, ginger ale, even Coca-Cola with the bubbles stirred out, which is, I know, a crazy recommendation from a pediatrician, but there is something very soothing about that syrup. Yeah, the high fructose corn syrup. Yeah. So that actually settles, that is a, has a relaxation effect on the stomach muscles, so that not the stomach, your abdomen, but the actual stomach organ inside of you. And so there's actually a product called Emetrol, which yes. I know is used a lot of times, um, pregnant women who have uh, morning sickness will use it, but it can be used in kids too. And it's really just a cherry flavored high fructose corn syrup. So it's totally safe. We don't like high fructose no, corn we syrup don't. from a nutritional <laughs> standpoint. But it Most actually, days of your child's but life, it has we a want medicinal, you to it. it. has a medicinal effect that is to our advantage when your kid is vomiting. So you can try that too. And it's just sugar, so they'll like the flavor. Right, right. And so really, any anything um, that your child will like and will take in small sips that you can can work with is is appropriate. Things like milk, not as not as good. It, it tends to be an irritant when the mm -hmm. when the stomach and the intestines are irritated um, or inflamed. So generally avoiding dairy, um, avoiding citrus, you know, glass of orange juice probably is not your go-to, but those clear liquids, even in, you know, kind of soda or syrupy form, if that's all that they're going to drink, that's definitely better than nothing. And how fast is a kid going to get dehydrated? Are they going to throw up three times and then need an IV? Does that happen usually? No, no. Yeah. I mean, the smaller you are, the less reserve, you know? Sure. So certainly a child under a year that, that vomits over the course of a day can, can become dehydrated. Um, but no, uh, and, an, an episode of vomiting can mean 10 different retching <laughs> events. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that they really threw up 10 times. They emptied their stomach once. Right. Yes. Right. In, in maybe 10 violent <laughs> events. events. Yes. Um, and so if over the course of you know, a, a day, a child really is unable to keep anything down, then the smaller they are, the, the more likely to become dehydrated. And, and those things that we use, um, voiding every six to eight hours, mm -hmm. 
uh, crying tears in, in a younger child, uh, the inside of the mouth looking really dry, or we come back to that term kind of listless or lethargic. If your child really is not arousing appropriately and seems really, really fatigued or listless, that can be a real sign of dehydration. Sure. But that doesn't usually happen that quickly. No. Yeah. No. And then so you get past the vomiting phase, hooray. And then what usually follows, although it can happen concurrently, like you said, is the diarrhea phase and what to do about that. Yeah, I mean, that one, it's actually easier to keep up with those losses. Uh, once the vomiting has stopped, pretty much whatever is coming out the, the gastrointestinal tract, you want to keep up with. And um, if they're able to keep fluids down and not vomit them up, then you basically just want to try to, to instill in small amounts, uh, just really frequent small sips and, um, and replace what's coming out with what you're putting in. And once you get past fluids, once the child's keeping that down, then advancing the diet. Oh, yeah. This is one where parents often, well, this is one of our most common calls the yeah. day after we've talked about vomiting is, or two days later, is they'll call and they'll say, well, you know, after their morning cereal, suddenly everything came back again. And if you start in on dairy too early or on, you know, kind of high fat, greasy, spicy, any of those foods, you're going to irritate an already irritated intestinal lining or stomach lining. And this is where I try to point out to parents that, um, you know, what would you do if it was you? So if you had a day of vomiting and you kind of got through that, you probably wouldn't start the next day with bacon and eggs. Exactly. You would go slowly and maybe have a little bit of something, some bland oatmeal or something bland and then advance slowly over the course of a few days till you felt normal again. Exactly. And if you if you go too fast, oftentimes you'll get a little bit of a rebound in symptoms. And so, you know, our classic brat diet, the bananas, rice, applesauce, toast, those are just kind of general guidelines for the types of foods that starchy things yep. that really don't contain dairy that are generally the more binding foods to help get past the diarrhea. Right. And is there really a role for um, anti-diarrheal medicines in kids? No. In fact, I, you know, unless there is just an absolute, we are on a plane flight or, you know, we have to stop this for a short period of time, it really, the body's expulsion of these toxins is really important. And especially in young kids, we don't want to stop that process. I mean, there's a viral infection that's infecting the lining of your gut and you want to get it out. Yeah. And so even though it's unpleasant, the vomiting gets it out, the diarrhea gets it out. And if you're doing something to hold it in. It can be dangerous. It, yeah. It, it's certainly going to prolong your yeah. symptoms. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, we, we avoid, um, there, those are products that adults use. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, certainly have a role, but for the most part in pediatrics. But I think not. adults use them, um, probably because they have to go to work right, exactly. and do things like that. <laughs> um, and, but at the same time, it probably does prolong their illness too, yeah. but we just do that because we need to get things done, not because it actually makes us better faster. Right, right. No. And, and arguably it, it could have the exact opposite. Effect. So in a toddler, which is I think different than a school age kid, having gone through the vomiting and then the diarrhea, what's the time frame between when you think the symptoms should be completely 100% gone? Because we get a lot of questions about a week later, 
that they're better, but they're not all the way better. Yeah, we'll get a lot of this kind of post-viral inflammation or irritation where the, the system just hasn't returned to normal. Um, I find that a lot of times if you've reintroduced dairy too early, that'll be the thing that prolongs sure. it. Um, so really kind of sticking to that blander diet for a longer time if the loose stools come back every time you return to a normal diet is helpful. Mm -hmm. I have had a couple of kids that it turns out there was a bacterial process. You know, if you suddenly see blood in the stool or a whole lot of mucus, we want to know about it. We mm -hmm. would actually sample that stool yep. and make sure that there's not a bacterial infection, which usually we don't treat anyway, but it's it, important to identify. I would agree. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, that, those are some really good topics I think we touched on. We could do this all day um, and go on and on for hours, but I think this is all the time we have for today. So we definitely can continue the potpourri topic at another time and go through another three or four things. But I want to thank you for coming in today and um, talking to us, clarifying how parents can manage what are really very common things we see in the office, but I think there's a role for parent intervention and management decision-making before they come in. Yeah, and I think that, that one of the, the most important things, the question that I always ask parents on the phone is, how does your child look? Like, rather than the number on the thermometer, the number of times they vomited, the quality of the stool, do they look sick to you? Do they, do they seem like they really are not acting normally? And that always is a cause for concern. Right. I think that's a really good point because the parent can definitely gauge, are they a little bit sick, like they don't feel well, or are they like, he needs to go to the doctor sick? Yeah. And, and you know, obviously people people doubt their, their judgment and they worry that they're making the wrong call. But if, if, if your child is acting really pretty normally and just has some symptoms that are uncomfortable or, you know, disrupting to your lifestyle, that's usually not not a cause for concern, but if they're not looking themselves and you've, and you're worried about them, they should be seen. I would agree. And I think most pediatricians are able to accommodate that pretty easily. Yes. All right. Well, thanks again for coming in. My pleasure. And uh, I want to say a quick thing about if people want to hear more from you or come see you, where are you working and uh, how can people get a hold of you? I'm working with you. Well, I know that. <laughs> I know that. But let's so tell our office. Our office is in Danville, California. We have a very sweet, uh, small, private office that is an old Victorian building um, on Danville Boulevard. And uh, we accommodate general pediatrics from newborns through late teens. And I'm open for, for new patients. Okay. And uh, they can find us at one-to-onepediatrics.com. Yeah. That's our office. All right. Well, thanks again. And I uh, look forward to, well, I'll see you tomorrow in the office and we'll talk to you soon about other things. Perfect. And now let's take a brief break. When we return, we'll answer some questions from listeners. And we're back. Before we take questions, I want to remind the listeners about our phone-in line, which has been set up for people to call in and leave voicemail questions to be answered on the show. The call-in number is 925-732-6274. We also have a Facebook page at the Owner's Manual Podcast, where you can leave comments or post questions, or even leave an idea for the show. 
Whichever way you prefer, we can't wait to hear from you. And now for the questions. My name is Siobhan. I have a 20-month-old um, son, and we live in Lake Tahoe, California, and we're having problems with him being extremely bossy and throwing temper tantrums if he doesn't get his way, and we are wondering if we have any tips on how to address the situation. Any help would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. Thanks for calling, Siobhan. That's a great question. You have a 20-month-old who's having temper tantrums and being bossy does not sound very unusual to me. In fact, we talk about this several times a day in my office. So toddlers are very much cause and effect motivated. So they like toys where you press a button and something pops up or makes a noise or lights up. So if they do something and something else happens, whether it's positive or negative, that generally reinforces their behavior. So the same is true of how they might interact with you. Toddler's behavior is very much motivated by what they can do to draw you, the parent, into their world. So if they kick and scream and have a tantrum and it reinforces their behavior by, in the end, them getting what they want, then obviously that's going to reinforce their behavior. But also if they kick and scream and have a tantrum and draw you in, even if they're drawing in negative attention, so you're interacting with them or you're maybe even giving them a timeout, that still is going to reinforce their behavior. Anything that gets your attention is better for them than being ignored by you. So in a setting where you can ignore a tantrum, that is the fastest way to extinguish that behavior. So if they don't like it because you won't give them a cookie or whatever the situation is, and they flop to the ground and start kicking and screaming, the best thing you can do is literally get up, don't make a big deal about it, leave the room. The tantrum is not going to go on for very long if they have no audience. There's no point to it. The same is true as if they try to boss you around when they start to learn how to talk. If they talk to you in a way that makes you upset and you respond with don't talk to me that way or some kind of an interaction, then they've gotten your attention and distracted you from whatever it was you were doing. The best thing you can do when a kid talks to you that way is to leave because that did not communicate anything from them to you and did not get reinforced in any way. Now, obviously, if they decide to have a tantrum and you're in the grocery store, you can't leave them alone because that's not safe. But you can pretend to ignore them and be very fascinated by the green beans on the shelf rather than by what they're doing. And if they find that quickly they're escalating their behavior and it's having absolutely no effect on you, they're gonna try a different strategy. Now, when they start to behave positively, like maybe they grab your leg and hug it, or they use their words properly, you have to be very quick to positively reinforce that behavior, pick them up, give them a kiss, interact with them. But if they're treating you in a way that you don't like, they're hitting you, they're rolling on the ground, I would be very quick to, if possible, distance yourself physically from them. So when you're looking at your child's behavior, you have to immediately evaluate what is the secondary gain? Why are they doing this? Because there's absolutely no way that they're expending energy if there's no point. So if they're getting you upset, getting you riled up, or eventually getting what they want, then that is reinforcing the behavior. And you really have to think about changing the response 
so that they are either getting absolutely nothing from you or what the response is is not what they want at all. Now, the other thing that is really, really important is consistency. If you have set limits for behavior and you follow through with those limits three quarters of the time, it's going to take much longer to extinguish a bad behavior and it might not even happen. They have to know that every time they behave a certain way, the following is going to happen, whether that's being ignored, being given a timeout, being put in their room. If they get away with bad behavior some of the time, bad behavior is going to absolutely persist. I hope that's helpful. And here's our next question. Hi, Dr. Nash. My name is Carrie Rose, and I'm from Clayton, California. My question for you today is, what is the best way to handle a three- or four-year-old tantrum? Thanks for calling, Carrie. Another behavioral question. This is kind of reflective of what I do all day long in the office. So now three or four-year-olds with tantrums. This is a bit different as far as the strategy because what's happened at this age is children have developed the ability to interact verbally. So once they learn to talk, they learn to talk back. And frequently a child this age will talk to you in a way that will make your hair stand on end. So the trick to this is a couple of things. Children at this age are absolutely skilled at pressing your buttons. So it is really, really important as a parent to keep those buttons hidden. They cannot see that you are hurt or upset by anything they do or say. If they think that they can wreck your afternoon by talking to you a certain way or talking back, they will do it. If they feel like there's absolutely nothing that's going to affect you, then they're going to choose a behavior that gets what they want. So you can talk to a kid because they can talk back and you can explain to them, you know, I know Jane that we were planning on going to the park today. And so that really is up to you. You can behave a certain way, which usually would be what you want them to do. And we can go to the park. Or if you continue to behave this way, we're not going to the park and I'm going to sit home and read my magazine. And it really doesn't matter to me whether we go to the park or not. That is totally up to you. So you need to decide what kind of a day you want to have. Now, the first couple times you give them this sort of control, they might take pause for a second and test a limit and they might make the wrong choice, but then you have to follow through. So if you say you're not going to the park, if they behave a certain way and they continue to do that, then you cannot go to the park because doing so will absolutely undermine everything you're trying to accomplish. And if after a few times they've tested that limit and they realized you meant what you said, then when you give them a choice, they're going to make the right choice. They're going to say, well, do I want to go to the park or do I want to sit at home and watch mommy read a magazine? And they're going to generally do what it takes to behave in the way that they can get their reward. So the benefit of being able to talk to a child is that you can explain to them consequences that aren't necessarily immediate. You can tell them something that is going to be a response to the way that they're behaving now that's going to happen later on in the day or the next day. But the most important thing, just like I said about toddler behavior, is being consistent. Don't ever pull out a consequence that you're not absolutely ready to follow through with. And also make the consequence appropriate for the behavior. 
If a kid is behaving badly for the day, don't threaten them that you're going to cancel Christmas because there's no way that's going to happen. You're not going to follow through with that, and that's going to sound ridiculous to the child. So if there's something that they're planning on doing the next day or later on that day and they behave badly, let them know this is your choice. You get to control which way this day goes, but let them know that it does not affect you one way or the other, whether they get what they want or not. It's not going to ruin your mood. It's not going to wreck your day. And let them know that you've got two or three things that you'd rather do at home than take them to the park so they know it doesn't affect you at all. So just like I was talking about earlier with a toddler and how important consistency is, with a three or four-year-old, it is just as important or possibly even more so because they'll see your weaknesses. I could go on all day about this topic, but let me just close by making two points. One, consistency is of absolute importance. If a child can sometimes get away with a bad behavior, then that will reinforce that behavior. And two, it is really important for parents to keep their buttons hidden. A child cannot think that if they behave a certain way or talk to you a certain way, it's going to make or break your day. And in fact, it shouldn't. You're trying to get the child to change their behavior in a positive way. And that's all part of the parenting process. It shouldn't wreck your day. I hope that helps. And that's our show. I would really like to thank my guest, Marianne Borden, for taking the time to come in and speak to us about management of fever, respiratory infections, and gastroenteritis in children. These are obviously common issues that we see in the office every day, and I hope that this episode has helped to educate parents and increase their comfort level in home management of what are inevitable illnesses. For those who have been enjoying this podcast, I'm calling on you to help spread the word. Tell your friends to listen and subscribe. Visit our Facebook page at the Owner's Manual Podcast. Leave a comment, a question or an idea for the show. Until next week, this is your host, Drew Nash, wishing you good health and happy parenting. The opinions and beliefs expressed on the owner's manual are that of myself, Dr. Nash, and my guests, and do not necessarily represent those of sponsors or other governing boards. The Owner's Manual is recorded and produced at Neutron Sound, Danville, California. The content of the Owner's Manual is the intellectual property of Andrew L. Nash, M.D. and One to One Pediatrics Incorporated. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved.